Okay, so we are back in Galatians. Uh, in the last installment, Ryan took us through Galatians 4 verses 12 to 20, which at first glance is one of those passages of Scripture that you're like, I'll just breeze through this. Paul seems to be just ranting and raving at the Galatians. You think, well, really, what can we get out of it? But Ryan did such an amazing job. I thought I would just recap my entire sermon today on his preach. It was so profound. I'm just kidding. It was good. Uh, and there are some things that I did take from his preach that I want to remind us of. Paul reminded the Galatians that their relationship had started off as a friendship, you know, and I think that that's such a powerful thing because we do come to be in community to be friends first, okay? We do the work of the ministry afterwards. We tend to get that the opposite way around. Ryan said that well last week. We like to come and do the churchy stuff, but we don't want the discipleship stuff. We don't want the relationship stuff because it requires intentionality. Uh, and perhaps, you know, you feel that way. Maybe you're one of those people like me. I'm not proud of it, but I used to pride myself on being the first person to leave church sometimes 10 minutes before the service was even over because I was scared somebody might even talk to me. I say this often. I was often greeted in our previous church before I became an elder, obviously, right at the beginning, for about the first three or four years as a visitor. Everyone was like, oh, is this your first time here? And I'd be like, no, I've been here for three years. But it wasn't their fault, right? That's how I was. But Paul reminds the Galatians, this is not how the kingdom works. We are here to build with each other first, to get to know one another, to be there for each other. Because when life hits, and it does for all of us, we need friends around us. Friends that can encourage us and friends that can spur us on. The second thing that Ryan spoke about was how the Judaizers separated themselves from the Galatians, that they thought they were better than them. They had this superiority to them. They knew what was going on. They were the persons in the know. And the Galatians were happy to treat them like that. They were understanding that these guys are better than us. They've clearly got this revelation from God that we don't have. That's why I took time this morning to say that this group here is no different to any one of us. Because the fact of the matter is we love in American culture to create celebrities within church context. We love to put people on pedestals. We love to raise people up, whether that's worship leaders, bands, singers, or even preachers. We set them on such a high pedestal that when they come tumbling down, we start to think to ourselves, oh no, we need to deconstruct our faith because God has let us down. No, it's because we've created an idol out of people. There are no celebrities in the church. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only person we worship. And so we as a church have to be intentional about making sure that we don't push anybody to the position where they become the specialist that's going to teach us everything. We don't need Moses anymore. I've said this before. You can go to God yourself and you need to hear from God yourself because if you're relying on me to tell you what God's saying, I have bad days, friends. I know it's hard to believe. Ask Catherine. She'll tell you, I have bad days sometimes. You don't want to be relying on me every day of your life to hear from God. Believe, ask my kids. They'll tell you. Just ask them. They'll give you the real lowdown. But don't, no, don't actually ask them, please. Lastly, he reminded us that the gospel is powerful in weakness. That was his sort of core point, which he got to right at the end of his preach. But I think it was such a powerful point. Because when I think of the gospel being made powerful in weakness, I get excited. Because I think, Lord, if you could use someone like me, a hopeless washout drug addict, and do something in my life for your glory, not my own, then you know it, Lord, I have a chance in this world. And I love that statement that Ryan said, God has factored in our stupidity long before we ever took the steps we took in his kingdom. I mean, and so the next time you're feeling down and depressed because you feel like you've let God down, remind yourself, God factored that in already. He's already made allowances for it on the cross. It was paid for by Jesus Christ. Paul, Ryan described him, was a picture of weakness. He said he had big eyes and a big nose. Like, I honestly was, thought he was describing a bat. But I mean, it was quite a scary picture. That's what Paul looked like. He was weak. He was frail. But yet he preached the gospel in power. 
Jesus, think about this. I love this picture. Well, I, I mean, I don't love the picture of the cross, but Jesus was the lamb that was led to the slaughter, right? That's a picture of weakness. Lamb, lambs, uh, is that the plural of lambs? Lambs? Lambs are not very strong. They're pretty meek and mild and timid. But let me tell you, that lamb that went to the cross is coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. See, that's what God does in our weaknesses. He transfers him. He flips him around because he is almighty. He is all powerful. And then I think of Peter. You know, that guy was so scared to admit that he was a follower of Jesus that he told a young girl that, no, he didn't know Jesus. And so he denies Christ. Yet Jesus forgives him, goes to heaven, pours the spirit out 50 days later. What does Peter do? He preaches a sermon at Pentecost and thousands of people are saved from weakness to strength. That's what God does in our lives. He takes us from positions of weakness to positions of strength, not for our glory, but for his glory. Paul says this in Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So if you think you're foolish, good job. He chose you and me to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We live in a kingdom of opposites. God uses the most unlikely people to, the, to do the greatest things. Think of Jonah. I mean, that guy was a weirdo. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring, to thing, bring nothing to things that are, so that no human may boast in the presence of God. We have no position of boasting, none of us. No matter what you do in the kingdom, no matter your function, your title, your position, we never boast in the presence of God or before man because all the glory belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a mini sermon on your preach, by the way. And that brings us to this morning. Paul's going to carry on going through all of this cool stuff. He's going to talk about the power of the gospel. He's going to talk about the freedom of the gospel. He's going to talk about the grace of the gospel. But this time he's going to share an illustration that's not just going to include Abraham. He's going to expand it a little bit. And he's going to include Abraham's family. Sarah, look how cute she is. Little Isaac there, having a good time. We're going to talk about Hagar as well. She's not in the picture. She didn't make the cut. And Ishmael, they aren't allowed to be up there because we'll see why later. Turn in the New Bible to Galatians 4. We're going to read from verse 21. Quite a lot of verses today. 11 verses, I know it says shorter verses there, ignore that. We're doing 11 verses today, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, I submit the teaching of this word into your hands. I pray that you would season every word I speak with salt uh, and that it would be life-giving. I pray that you would just empower us today with the revelation of who you are. I pray for greater revelation of your glory today, Jesus. I pray for chains to be broken and for those of us who are stuck in bondage to be set free. I pray for freedom to reign in this place as this message is preached in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read together. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. It says this. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, 
We are not children of the slave, but of free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff in this passage. Enough stuff to make you think, Paul, what are you actually saying? Like, I mean, there's all this stuff in there. There's so many concepts that Paul covers in these 11 verses. He talks about sonship. He deals with slavery. He speaks about the flesh. He speaks about the promise. He speaks about covenants. He speaks about Jerusalem. He speaks about Sinai. And he ends off with the greatest word ever, and that is freedom. And while all of this can be a little bit overwhelming when we look at it, at the core of what Paul is saying is simply this. It's a choice. And the choice is this. We can choose to live our lives as slaves to the law, or we can choose to live our lives in the freedom that Jesus died to give us. Let me say that again. We can choose to live our lives as slaves to the law, to legalism, to our works, or we can choose to live our lives for the freedom that Jesus died to give us. That's essentially what Paul's saying. And that's the end of my preach. I summarize it real quick, Tim. Don't get excited. I'm just joking. <laughs> my hope this morning is that if you haven't made the choice this morning between freedom or slavery, today will be the day that you choose freedom. And to do that, I've got some realities that I want us to consider real quick today. Galatians 4 to 1, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul's being a little bit cheeky. I don't know if you can pick it up in what he's saying. He's being a little bit sarcastic, actually. But the first reality for us is this. Choosing the law means choosing hypocrisy. For that to make sense, I want us to unpack two things that Paul says. The first thing he talks about in this passage is the law. And so we have to understand, what is this law that Paul is talking about? Is he talking about the 2,000 verses of Mosaic legislation that got condensed down into 633 laws? Is he talking about those laws? Is he talking about a particular law in this text? Or is he talking about something else? I believe the, Paul, the, Paul, the law that Paul is referring to here is not the Mosaic legislation. I don't think it has anything to do with the actual law written by Moses. Instead, I think he's referring to what Jewish people would call the Torah. Jewish people call the Torah, which is actually the first five books of the Bible. It's the book of the law. It's five books together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I believe Paul is referring to the totality of those five books. Then what we also have to understand is what is Paul saying when he says being under the law? What does he mean to be under the law? I think that what Paul is saying has got less to do with obedience. He's not saying to be under the law means to obey the law, but I think to be under the law, he's saying to look to the law as the mechanism that makes a person righteous. That's what I think he's referring to. Now you might be thinking, well, what does that matter? It matters a lot because what the Judaizers had believed and now the Galatians, was basically a hypocritical theology. They were hypocrites. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but most religious people are hypocrites. They love to tell us what to do, but they don't do it themselves in private, right? And the reason I'm saying that they're hypocrites is because these people were so proud of following the Torah. They were so proud of following the, five, the first five books of the Bible 
while at the same time they were perfectly happy to ignore a critical aspect of what the Torah teaches. I said this already, the Torah includes the first five books. The first book is what? Genesis. Which, by the way, has no mosaic legislation in it. There is no mosaic law in the book of Genesis. But what Genesis does include is the first example of how God would ultimately cause every believer in this world and his desire for every believer in this world to relate to him. And that is justification by faith alone. Genesis 12 verse 7. For God, I mean, for Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That was mentioned in the first book of the Bible. Long before the law was ever written, God set the foundation, he set the scene in place that people would relate to him through justification by faith alone, in the faith of his promise. Now we know that the ultimate promise that Abraham and everybody else believed in was Jesus, and it was because Jesus was coming one day that it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. And so Paul's point is this, you cannot truly be under the law without the understanding that it is faith in the seed of Abraham that justifies us. Because if you believe in the law and do not believe that it's faith in the seed of Abraham that justifies you, it is a scary place to live in because you will never be justified. Because none of us in this room can ever live up to the standards that the law requires. We will never be able to stand before a holy and righteous God apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So it makes us wonder, or it makes me wonder at least, then why would the Galatians fall for this teaching? Why, why were they so caught up in what the Judaizers were saying to them? And the answer, as Ryan put it, is that it's human nature. We love the idea of following a set of do's and don'ts. If you can tell me what to do and how to do it, I'll follow it. Because when we do that, we start to be able to convince ourselves that we're actually in charge of our own righteousness. And it's up to us to earn our salvation. And when we do that, what are we feeding? We're feeding our pride. Believing in grace requires huge amounts of humility. You see, this is the fact. How we relate to Jesus as believers today has got nothing to do with what we have done, what we will do today, or what we might do tomorrow. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross. That's the great exchange. The great exchange is Jesus taking my sinful human nature, all the stuff that I get wrong on a daily basis, and putting it on himself, going to the cross, bearing the penalty for my sin, and then giving me the opportunity to believe that what he did on the cross was finished and final, and when I do that, when I make that decision, he gives me his righteousness in exchange for my sin. And so when God the Father from heaven looks to me one day and he says, why do you deserve to enter into this heaven? All I say is because Jesus paid the price for me, and that is it. It is a miracle. It is supernatural. There's nothing we can drum up in our flesh to make it happen. And that leads us into the next reality. Choosing the law means that we have to rely on what's possible in the natural. That's what the law is. It's what we can do with our own abilities. Paul says this, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So Paul gets to the main crux of his illustration now. Now he's going to start talking about Abraham and his family. We all know this. Abraham had been given a promise by God. I mentioned already. Yes, there was going to be the seed one day, which was Jesus Christ. But in the immediate future, Abraham was promised a son. Does everyone remember his name? Isaac. His name was Isaac. 
And so Abraham and Sarah get this promise. And so what do they do? They do what a married couple does and they start to try and have this baby Isaac. I don't want to go into more detail than that. But year after year, they continue trying for this son called Isaac that God promised them. And he never comes. Isaac is never born. And so what happens is they start to lose hope. They become hopeless. And so out of desperation, which by the way, is often when we turn to our flesh. When you are in a place of desperation, the first thing we want to do is turn to our own abilities. When you're in a tough spot, the first thing we do is figure out how do we get out of it. We don't naturally go to God in a tough spot. When things are going great, we're like, I praise you, Jesus. Things are bad. Okay, what am I going to do? It should actually be the opposite way around, right? We should be in the most difficult of moments, in the most desperate of moments, saying to the Lord, I need you now more than ever because only you can get me out of this. Anyway, back to what I was saying. Sarah comes up with a plan. She says to Abraham, I've got a great idea, Abraham. I mean, this is pretty weird for a wife to do, right? Here's a great idea. Clearly, this is not working what you and I are doing. And so there's this other lady that is actually our slave, but also your other wife, Hagar. And so why don't you go and try speed things along? And maybe, just maybe, you know, things will work out. We all know how the story ends. Abraham goes and uh, has relations with, Sarah, uh, with Hagar. And Ishmael is born. Great. Promise fulfilled. Right? No. Because God never promised Ishmael. God promised Isaac. God wasn't interested in Abraham or Sarah's fix. He wasn't interested in their self-conceived ideas. God isn't interested in what we can drum up within ourselves. God had another way. It would be his way. And so we fast forward a bit in the story and what, what ends up happening Isaac is ultimately born, right? And guess when he's born? He's born at the point in time where Abraham and Sarah have no business having children. They're at the point where it is impossible to have children. Have you ever wondered, maybe God hasn't broken into your circumstance yet because it hasn't become impossible yet. God shows up in Abraham and Sarah's life when it should never have happened. He shows up at the point in time where we can only say, but God did this. Why? Because no man will boast in the presence of the Lord. And that's precisely the point. God works in the supernatural. He works in the miraculous. So if you're waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, believe me, friends, when it seems most unlikely, I'm not guaranteeing it will because maybe it's not God's will. But here's what I do want to say is when things seem the most unlikely, that's often when God shows up. Our salvation, our sanctification are not things that any one of us can produce on our own. We can't save ourselves and we can't make ourselves more holy. In fact, when we try to make ourselves more holy, when we try to please God, when we try to become better Christians, when we try to become good Christians, we become more legalistic, we become people that follow the law, and not only do we end up burning ourselves out, but guess what we produce? We produce Ishmael's. And I don't know if you know this, but Ishmael's come with consequences. Case in point, the nation of Israel today is facing war. As a result of this quick fix, let me help God do what he said he was going to do. Now, obviously, it happens in our lives where God gives us a promise. He gives us a destiny. He says, this is what I'm calling you into. This is the future I have for you. And then we wait and we wait and we wait and it's not happening. And then we say, okay, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to help you along the way. I'm going to buy that air ticket. He's like, well, do whatever you want. You can buy the air ticket. So you buy the air ticket. You get on the plane. You get to where God says you need to go. But he's not there yet. And so you're ahead of him now. Then you're in financial trouble. Then you can't pay your bills. And all of these things start to end up happening to your life. And then you go back to God and say, Lord, why did you do this to me? And he's like, well, I wasn't there yet. 
We must be careful not to make Ishmael's out of the promises that God gives us. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Again, you read this. You're like, what, is, what are you saying? Like, is there, there must be an easier way to say this, Paul. He's saying it's an allegory, right? So in other words, take the pictures, the people, the places, and apply them to principles, to ideas. Okay, so let's think back. Okay, so what is Paul actually saying? If we think to the context of the book of Galatians, what is the central theme of the book of Galatians? It's the message of the gospel. Right, you've heard the gospel every week when this series has been preached. Week after week after week, we hear the gospel of grace. And so we have to look at this allegory through that lens. So let's think about this. First... Like Abraham was given a promise, you and I as believers are given a promise from God. Not only that we'll be saved, but that in our salvation, we will actually end up becoming more godly people. That's the first promise. The second promise that we are given as believers is like Abraham, we are asked to walk into this promise with persistent faith. Abraham was given the promise. It was years later before Isaac came. So we're given the beginning of the promise, we're saved. We're promised that one day we'll enter into glory, which is heaven. But in between now and that point in time, there is an additional promise. And that is God supernaturally is going to sanctify us. And so by persisting in faith, by looking to Jesus, by making much of Him, by allowing the Holy Spirit in us to do what He wants to do through us, then we start to become more like Christ. That's part of the promise. But here's the other part of the allegory that Paul wants to get across. We don't like long journeys. How many of you are impatient? I'm impatient, right? I like to know things. I like to do things. I don't want to wait for things. If God says something, I want it to happen now. And so he knows, Paul is using this analogy because he knows that all of us in this room run the risk of doing what Abraham did. We want to shortchange our sanctification. We want to say, Lord, I don't want it to take 30 years for me to become a better person. I want to become the perfect person today. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jump into this thing called the law. I'm going to create a list of rules and regulations. I'm going to create a list of do's and don'ts. And I'll show you, Lord, I'll be holy by tomorrow. You can try that, bro. It's not going to work. It's amazing. That's what the Galatians had done. They started with this free gift of grace. Ryan said it last week. Gift of grace. You are saved, set free, delivered. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But now as they matured, they started to maintain their salvation. Okay, well, I've got to keep it. I've got to keep doing this. Now, what God said he would do, I've actually got to take over because he's taking too long. And there's a challenge in that because it's either Jesus or the law. It's either following Jesus or following the law. I've said this before. These are oil and water. These things do not mix together. You can't have a little bit of Jesus sprinkled with a little bit of the law. It's either I fully, holy, and totally trust in Jesus and the finished work of the cross, or I'm going to follow the law. That brings us to a third point. Choosing the law means choosing slavery. Contrary to popular belief, or at least what the world wants to teach our children, there aren't many ways to God. There's only one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ. But that means that there is an incorrect choice too. You can choose life or you can choose death. It's like every great sci-fi movie ever made. There's always two paths, right? Man standing at the crossroads. Does he go left? Does he go right? Wide is the road that leads to destruction. 
Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. Those are the only two choices before every one of us. And in this text, there's two choices, slavery or freedom. You decide. And what Paul is saying is this. In order to please the Judaizers, the Galatians placed themselves into slavery. They had chosen Hagar, which is a representation of slavery. And let me tell you, even though Ishmael was Abraham's son, he was born to a slave, and so that made him a slave as well. Ishmael was always going to be a slave. It made them a slave to their own abilities. But here's the clincher. Because the Galatians had willfully chosen to place themselves back under the bondage of the law, do you know what position they were operating from? They were operating from a position of unbelief. Think about it. The reason Abraham and Sarah went to Hagar in the first place is they could not believe that God could do what he said he would do. And so by going to the law, we are saying to God that we don't believe that you can sanctify us. We don't believe that your Holy Spirit in us can do something amazing in me. And so I'm going to help you along the process. You're not in a position of faith. Religious people are not operating from faith. Legalistic people are not operating from faith. They might say they love Jesus, but they're operating from their own unbelief. That hit me hard. And it's the same for us. Every time we work on our, rely on our works or on our religion, no matter how noble it is, I want to say this to you. You know, if you, if you decide to find something that's really good, like reading your Bible every day and making sure that you read it every day so that every year you can finish the Bible and then say to yourself, I'm going to do that every year for the rest of my entire life. And this thing becomes the thing that you wake up every day and you say, look at me, I'm reading the Bible again. Hallelujah, I'm an amazing man. Or you spend time in your prayer closet and you say, if I can just spend two hours a day praying to the Lord, I'll be okay. And you do two hours and you do two hours and you do two hours. Then you start thinking, look at me, Lord, I've arrived. I can do two hours in your presence. I'm the man. And then you miss one day and you go, oh, jeez, Lord. Lord, you don't love me anymore. That thing has become an Ishmael. Get rid of it. Don't do it. The cross is enough. Jesus is enough. Now, I'm not saying don't read your Bible. I know all the kids here. My son's going to say, Dad, you told me not to read the Bible. He said it's bad for me. I'm not saying the Bible's bad for you. I'm not saying that praying is bad for you. I'm not saying coming to church is bad for you. I'm saying when that thing becomes the thing that makes you feel like God loves you more than he does yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then that thing has become a problem and you need to sort it out and you need to go back to God and say, Jesus, you are enough. Fourth reality, choosing grace means choosing freedom. Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Another one of these statements, it is just so weird. But let me give you some context around the statement. When Christianity was birthed, Jerusalem was the center of evangelism, right? It made sense. Jesus died in Jerusalem. The first Christians were Jewish. It was the place where everything sort of moved outwards. Persecution comes to the Jerusalem church. Had it not come, I don't know if they would have gone. But persecution comes and people start to scatter. They start to go to all the corners of the world, ultimately fulfilling the Great Commission to know Christ and to make him known. So they start going out there and preaching the gospel, which is a good thing. But not every Christian left Jerusalem. Those that stayed behind, according to church history, became hyper-conservative. They became more Jewish in their Christianity. And so the Jerusalem church was a very Jewish Christian church. As a result... 
they started to see themselves as being more superior than any other forms of Christianity, especially the Christianity that Gentiles were believing in. Because, I mean, these were pagans, now they're saved. We're better than them because we've got the history of the law. We've got Moses and Abraham and the patriarchs behind us. And so this must be the right way and you guys suck. And so in 1849, when this letter is written, these Judaizers, these false teachers, were telling the Galatians that if you want to be an authentic Christian, you've got to practice the Jerusalem Christianity. That's why Paul calls him the Jerusalem party. Paul's being persecuted, incidentally, because he no longer follows the Mosaic law. Paul doesn't obey the law anymore. He knows what grace is. And what's more, and this is probably one of the things that offended them the most, is Paul was telling the Galatian church and every other person that he was getting saved along the journey to look to God as their source of information, as the information that they needed to look to Him for everything that they needed to learn about their lives because the Holy Spirit in them could do it through them. That offended the Judaizers because Paul wasn't telling them to go back to Jerusalem and ask the Jerusalem church to be how, to become, how to become a Christian. That made them mad. It makes me wonder, when Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem in Luke 21, he says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. This happened years after the book of Galatians was written, just by the way. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. I wonder, maybe, and this is just a thought, this is just my own thought, perhaps the destruction of Jerusalem was God making it abundantly clear that our hope is not to be found in a heritage. Our hope is not to be found in a nation. Our hope is not to be found in uh, some type of super spirituality. Our hope is not going to be found in any denomination. Our hope is only ever to be found in Jesus Christ. When Jerusalem was just destroyed, there was nothing left of this. Verse 27, for it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one, in other words, the desolate one is Jerusalem, will be more than those of the ones who has a husband. Now this is a picture of Sarah. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a weird picture because it, it, it's a picture of Sarah, but it's like Sarah, superhero Sarah, okay? Because Sarah did have labor. This woman doesn't go into labor. Sarah birthed Isaac and she definitely went into labor. Sarah did have a husband. This woman in this Isaiah picture doesn't have a husband. But it's a picture ultimately of how God would take this message. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, Sarah. What does she say? Ah. God would take this picture of Jerusalem, the, the birthplace of Christianity, and he would take it and do something amazing. And ultimately what would end up happening is this gospel of grace would come from heaven. It's a picture of countless believers coming into saving faith through grace, not through works, not through law, not through legalism. And so Paul's saying if Hagar represents the law, then Sarah represents grace. And the better covenant of grace comes directly from the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. Put another way, grace comes from God himself and ultimately his son who came to this earth and died for each and every one of us. And so when we choose Jesus, we choose freedom. Amazing. Amen. Thank you, love. Verse 28, we're almost done. Only one more point left. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just, at that, that, just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. This is the last reality. Choosing freedom 
is going to come at a cost. Great way to end the preach, Mark. That's amazing. Thank you so much. It's good encouragement. I always say, go to Hope Rock Church. You'll be encouraged every Sunday. They'll tell you how much persecution you're going to go through in your life. You might be thinking, that doesn't sound great. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the freedom that the gospel provides is not 1,000% worth it. It is absolutely worth it. But we do new believers a, a disservice. We as Christians... In an effort to want to get people saved, we often sell people down the river. I say that to you because we promise them that when they receive the finished work of their cross, their life from that point in time is going to be absolutely perfect. It's going to be rainbows and butterflies. It's going to be health, wealth, and happiness. I haven't experienced that yet. And I'm not saying to you that there isn't joy in being saved. I'm not saying there isn't fulfillment in being saved. It is amazing. We prayed about it this morning. The reality is we are going to walk into various trials. Jesus said himself in John 16 verse 33, he said, know this, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so here's the deal. When we are getting people saved, we need to tell them the reality of it. You're going to walk into something that is going to require something of you. You're going to have to pick up your cross every day and you're going to have to carry that cross. People are not going to like you. And you know, that's what it means to be a Christian. We get persecuted. Who persecutes us? Well, the enemy persecutes us. The devil doesn't want us to be saved. And so the enemy throws all of his darts at us, right? But we have the shield of faith, right? So we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. The world is going to persecute us, right? When we say that there is only two genders, male and female, that's the way God ordained it. The world's going to say, you're a bigot, you're a horrible person. You don't know what you're talking about. You must be evil and you don't like anybody and you don't love anyone. You call yourself a Christian. It doesn't end there with the world. Because this is what Paul is saying to us. And the context of this verse is this. A lot of the persecution that you and I are going to face as believers in this world, hear me when I say this, is going to come from legalistic, law-obeying, and law-relying Christians. Let me say that again. A lot of your persecution, if you're a follower of the gospel of grace, is going to come from other Christians that are following the law, that are legalistic, that obey the law, and rely on the law. These are the people that think the law is going to save them, that their righteousness is going to save them. They're smug, self-righteous, and superior people. Deep down, this is the catch. They are insecure. Because as much as they want to be righteous, nobody ever knows. You'll never know if you've done enough to please God, right? Until you stand before God. And because they're insecure, you'll find that these people become very touchy. They're very sensitive. They don't want criticism. And they're mean. These are modern-day Pharisees. You will encounter them in your walk, and I want you to be prepared for it, friends. And the reason you're going to encounter these people is because just like Paul said, the child of the flesh persecuted the child of the promise. He didn't like, Ishmael did not like Isaac. Religious people who are fighting with all of their willpower to stay pure will persecute Christians who acknowledge that they cannot stay pure by their willpower, but who instead rely on God's grace and trust in the Christ in them to live through them. They don't like it. Now we love them. And we have to help them, but just be prepared for that. We often say that we get hurt the worst in church, right? That's where most people get hurt, Christians. We don't get hurt by the world. We expect it. We expect the world to attack us. But we don't like it, and we don't expect it when other believers do. So I'm preparing you. So don't say I didn't tell you. Don't say I didn't warn you. Amen. Paul tells us how to respond to these people in verse 30. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast him out. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You think casting them out is a bit of a 
dramatic thing. It's like, that's a bit mean. Why would we do that? Now, I'm not saying we'd do that in the natural, but when both Isaac and Ishmael lived together, the home was chaos. They were oil and water. They could not get along with each other. The point that Paul's making is that there is no room for mosaic religiosity in the church, the true church. There is no room for legalism. There is no room for us to be superior to one another. There is no room for us to condemn other people. We have to understand that we are called to love people and that all of us are being saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the only mechanism of our salvation. The band can come up. I'll be surprised if everyone comes back next week. Verse 31. So brothers, I'm ending now. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When Paul says, so brothers, it's his way of saying in conclusion, right? It's over. I've told you everything I need to tell you right now in this passage. And here's the conclusion. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Look at the person next to you and say, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Okay, so now we have to ask the next question. What is this freedom that Paul is talking about? Yes, man, I'm a Christian now. Jesus saved me. Woo! I can go and do whatever I want, man. I'm going to go sin tomorrow. I'm going to go have five girlfriends, you know, all of this stuff. It's going to be awesome because, yes, this grace thing is amazing. Is that the freedom that Paul is talking about in this verse? No, it's not. Why? Because when we are saved, we won't want to sin. Not out of obedience to a set of laws and rules and, and, and legislations, but out of a heart of gratitude because we've moved from darkness to light. We've moved from death to life. The Bible says that when we're saved, we become new creations. In other words, the old man has been put to death. That's what baptism does. I've said it before. We are now a new man. We're not perfect yet, but we are becoming a new person. So what is the freedom? The freedom is this. It's freedom from guilt and condemnation. Romans chapter 1, I mean 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, right? There is no condemnation. When you fail, when you sin, repent. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. And the enemy comes to heap it on you. You say, take it back. It's on, my, it's on mine to carry. Jesus paid for it at the cross. It's freedom from the kingdom of darkness. It's freedom from the dominion of darkness. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that we've been transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. That means Satan has no authority in your life, friends. No authority. You don't have to be scared of the devil. He's a loser. Okay, he is strong like a roaring lion. But let me tell you, the authority we have in Christ can conquer any enemy. We can put him to flee when we just tell him, no, that's not who I am, Satan. This is who I am. I'm a new creation. It's freedom from the complexity of following rules and regulations and the law. Paul says in Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. You know what that means? It means righteousness is being produced in us even when we don't want it to be produced because the Holy Spirit is in me and He's in you. We need to start living in the authority that Jesus died to give us, friends. And so no matter what lies the enemy's told you, no matter what, no matter what lies self-righteous Christians have told you, no matter what lies you've told yourself, I want you to know something this morning. If you believed in the finished work of the cross, you are loved, saved, redeemed, set free, and most importantly, the Spirit of the eternal God who is in you is working on you even though you can't see it. And here's your identity. You're not a sinner trying to become a saint. That's what religion wants you to believe. You're a saint who struggles with sin. But the Holy Spirit in you is going to help you overcome it. 
And so Hope Rock Church, stand firm and do not ever submit again to a yoke of slavery. Can I ask you to stand? I had a strong sense this morning and I said in the prayer meeting and I'm going to say it now. We've lost the joy of our salvation because we've allowed ourselves to believe that we're just not good enough for it anymore. And so we often, I mean, I know in my life, I was saying it to the people we're praying with today. I spend the vast majority of my time talking to God, apologizing for all this stuff, not repenting, apologizing for who I am, apologizing for the mess I am, apologizing that I'm not worthy enough, apologizing that I mess it up all the time, Lord. When the Lord just encouraged me, He said, just remember what I've done for you. Come to me in that position. Set free, born again, child of God. That's how you come into the presence of God. You are His son. You are His daughter. You don't come in there groveling. You come in there in that authority. And then you say, Lord, I've got things I need to sort out in my life. Holy Spirit, help me do that. You see, when did Jesus stop being enough for us? When did He stop being enough? I know in my life there's moments where I've realized Jesus actually wasn't enough anymore because I've had to do things on my own. This morning, I believe God wants to break chains. He wants to set us free. And I know we're in an area where nobody ever puts their hand up for prayer and nobody wants to come up for prayer because we're all too embarrassed because everything in Lakeway is perfect, okay? We've got this perfect picture of our lives. I wanna tell you, friends, I don't see a single perfect person out there because I can't see anyone, okay? But seriously, none of us in this room are perfect. None of us in this room don't struggle with stuff. And so if you have a chain that needs to be broken today, let the Lord break it. Stop being, you know, so caught up in the moment where we don't want anyone to know our stuff. If you need prayer, come up to the front. If you need salvation and you're not saved, come up to the front. If you need someone just to pray with you next to you, get there, put your arm around them. If you have problems, share your problems. I'm so tired of a perfect church. We're all broken people going through stuff in our lives. And we need to be vulnerable and honest with one another. Because when we are honest and vulnerable, there is freedom, friends. That's the whole point of this book and I want us to experience it this morning. And so we're going to sing this song. But I want to ask you just, if you need prayer, come up. If you need to talk to someone, speak to them. If you need to share your heart with one of us, and maybe you don't have to go into all the details, but just say, hey, I need prayer. I'm, I'm in bondage. I'm in bondage to all of the stuff I've put on myself. I'm going to pray. And then let's sing. Father, thank you for the freedom that your word gives us. Thank you for the freedom of the cross. Thank you for the freedom of the gospel. And this morning we declare as a church, Jesus, you are enough. You've always been enough and you will always be enough. And that's all we need is you, Jesus. Break the chains that need to be broken in our hearts this morning. Not just today, but every day of our lives. When they rise up, break them in Jesus' name. I pray this today in your power and in your might. Amen.